If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, sorry, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Good evening all. Good evening, how are you going? It's great to be here. It's great to be able to open God's word, isn't it? Many places in the world where if I was doing what I'm doing now, I'd be watching over my shoulder and perhaps looking out the window to see if anybody was going to come and arrest me. And that can be a frightening experience, I'm sure, for those Christians in other parts of the world who are meeting like this, perhaps in someone's house or perhaps in a tent or in a backyard somewhere um, talking about the Bible. Uh, we're very privileged. When Sue and I go on holidays every January, we go down to a place called Bulleye down in the south coast. Anyone been to Bulleye? Yeah, great. There's a caravan park there that's right on the beach. <clears throat> uh, you have to walk from here across the road to the, to the um, Restore Hall, and that's where the coffee shop is. You walk to the corner, and that's where the beach is. Terrible place. Never recommend it to anybody. Um, I think, you, I think you have to uh, retire or die to get a caravan park spot there or something. They're fairly, uh, fairly well sought after for some reason. And God in his, in his um, God's got a sense of humour, you know. God in his sense of humour has plonked Sue and I right in the middle of Christians. How good's that? They're all Baptists. How good's that? Uh, there's some relevance to that when I talk to you a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, like is my one, I'm an early riser. Anyone here an early riser? One. <laughs> All right, one. Good, thanks, Chris. Um, I love getting up early in the morning. Um, for some reason, Sue doesn't. She sort of, whenever I say to her, oh, come on, let's go down to the beach and watch the sunrise. That's what happens. For all of you who are engaged, ready to be married, you might experience the same sort of thing if you're an early riser. I go out, I go out early in the morning for, for one reason. Not to upset my wife, but to go and sit on the headland and watch the sunrise. I love doing that. It is absolutely gobsmackingly fantastic. I take a few cameras with me and take a few photos and, and to remember the time. 
Now, if you can remember sunrises, those of you who are not early risers, um, aren't they magnificent sights? They're absolutely, they're just gobsmacking. I just love them. And as we were reading Psalm 19 uh, earlier, and thanks, uh, Dee, for doing that, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge, but there is no speech and there are no words. There are no words for God's creation. There are no words for the sunrise. It's just like, wow, looking at the sunrise. That's why I get up early in the morning. It's fantastic. It's just so good. You should try it one day, Phil. <laughs> yeah, by way of introduction, that, the, the point that the psalmist is making there is that God's creation speaks for itself. His presence in this world, his control of the world, his um, creation and sustaining of creation is all there for people to see. Now, what do other people see in sunrises? They, they, they look at the meteorological information about it and it's, um, it's at such and such a time in the day, at such and such an angle or whatever. They actually miss the point, don't they? They try to overanalyze things. As far as I'm concerned, it can come up wherever it likes to come, wherever God tells it to come up, and, um, and it's beautiful. It's great stuff. But that's got nothing to do... Not, nothing specifically to do with what I'm going to talk about. I just want to share that with you. We live in a modern society, don't we? We're pretty clever. Where we live, people would love to live in our country from other places. We're peaceful. Uh, the way of life that we have is really good. Uh, we're amongst the best places in the world to live. But like other places in the world, we've got a major problem. And it's got nothing to do with the physicality of this place. It has to do with the focus of who we are and what we see. And the problem is that we live our lives according to us, to me, to I. We don't live according to God. We totally ignore him most of the time. And we read in the Bible that if we continue to do that, we're going to face some dire consequences. What we're looking at in Romans today is part of a, a three chapters. Chapter 9 deals with the past, Israel, uh, and uh, how it related to God and how God related to Israel, his own children. Chapter 10 of Romans is the here and now in Paul's time. How are the Israelites relating to, uh, to God uh, during Paul's, Paul's time on earth? And chapter 11 looks to the future and anticipates how Israel is going to react and act to God, uh, in relationship to God uh, in the future. And there's a consistency through that, isn't there? They thought that they knew how to live life. Uh, before Paul, during the time of Paul, and in, in anticipation, as we know, looking back after Paul, so why do we look at ancient history when we come here and meet together? Shouldn't we be doing something else? Shouldn't we be trying to solve the problems of the world or something? Why are we sitting here looking at ancient history? What's the relevance of that to us? We live in the Hawkesbury. <clears throat> it's quite different. Everything that went on in, uh, in Jesus' time and in Paul's time happened thousands of years ago. Our country has turned its back on God. We've got... Um, 
same-sex marriage being in instituted in the law. So the law blesses um, same-sex marriage. People are wanting to determine their own gender identity. Uh, there are politicians and industrialists and entrepreneurs, ordinary people like you and I, and even clergy who are trying to bow down to the expectations of the people in the society around them. Get with it. It's a modern society. You guys are all living in the past. And that is often uh, pointed to us, isn't it? We've got extreme poverty and we've got extreme wealth in the same country. And if that isn't enough, we've got a whole lot of natural disasters to deal with. We've got bushfires, they're right at our doorstep. We've got drought. Uh, we've got an economy on the verge of recession and we've got a declining manufacturing industry and we're hugely in debt. We're facing difficult issues today and these matters are real. We're not denying that and requiring urgent attention. So we get on television and we discuss the best ways of dealing with things and we join organisations like the United Nations and talk about peace. So why are we wasting our time going to church when we should be putting more attention to those things? Why should we worry about past events? They happened a long time ago in another place, a long way from here. Well, I want to suggest to you that we should be looking at ancient history, that we should be going to church. It's not a waste of time because what happened then is totally relevant to what's happening now. You see, back then God set aside a people for, him, for uh, his people and he formed a relationship with them and he made a covenant with them, a contract, if you like, between himself. That was based on obedience and worship. He would be their God. They would be his people. That was a covenant relationship. But time and time again, Israel broke the contract, didn't they? They decided that they knew better. They went for other gods. They went for idols. They went for power. They went for wealth, self-righteousness, self-reliance, totally rejecting God. They ignored God's laws. They decided that they knew best. They had the answers. Let's go that way. Can you start to see the connection between then and now? Almost everything that Israel experienced, we've also experienced, slightly differently of course, but nevertheless experienced. What about idol worship? Yes. What about power? We can tick that one. Wealth or yearning for wealth? Yes. Being self-righteous? Nothing wrong with me, I'm a good bloke. Self-reliance. You can be whatever you want to be. Outright rejection of God? I'll give that one a double tick because I think that deserves it. And our experience today mirrors that of Israel. It's funny, you know, when you read the Bible, that's not funny, it's, it's, it's quite um, revealing. The writers of the Bible are very intuitive, very wise. Ecclesiastes 1 Verse 9 reminds us, and it's a very well-known verse, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. For there is nothing new under the sun. We might think we're sophisticated, but if we measure ourselves on how far we've come, we find we haven't progressed very much at all. 
The societies and cultures that predated us have all been there before us and we continue to make the same mistakes. We're fairly slow learners, aren't we? So why, why are we continuing to fail? What, what's the answer? What are we doing wrong? Are we missing something? Is it, is it, uh, have we missed something in the translation? You know, if we looked in a mirror, we'd probably see the problem. And that's us. I think that uh, mankind has an elevated view of themselves or ourselves. We believe that we've got the answers. We earnestly believe that the answers are out there just a matter of time before we find them. And any problem that you can think of on the world stage, health, water supply, agriculture, conflict, poverty, violence, economic prosperity, any of those things we think we've got a handle on or we've got an organisation that will look after it. By focusing on those sorts of things, we actually lose sight of the main game. We lose sight of God. And until we reset our focus, we will forever wander around in ever-decreasing or ever-increasing circles, looking for answers to life's questions and usually looking in the long, wrong place. A few years ago, I was, uh, when the Richmond markets were over here at the, uh, in Richmond Park, <clears throat> Uh, there was a stall there and there was a spiritualist in the stall. That's what I called her anyway. I don't know whether that is the correct title. And I listened to her for a while talking to a, another person, uh, talking about the virtues and the healing powers of crystals and minerals and the like and rocks. And after I'd heard her speak for a while, I, I went to the counter as I, as I tend to do with, with people and said to her, well, tell me, why are you putting your confidence in crystals and rocks? Why don't you put your confidence in the creator of the crystals and the rocks? Well, she thought I was speaking another language. Um, she probably also thought I was a bit crazy. I certainly didn't get through to her, but you can see the point I was trying to make. So how does a message get to people out there about not worshipping the creation or ourselves, but worshipping God. How do, how do we get it out there? How do we reveal it to people? God's revealing it all the time, but not pe people are not taking notice. In verses 14 to 17 we read, How then can they call the one they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they're sent? There are five points that Paul makes. A preacher must be sent, to start off with. And that sent preacher must preach the good news. Not talk about the bargains at Bunnings or anything like that, but preach the good news. And the good news must be heard. There's no, no point in somebody telling somebody about Jesus being in a locked room with nobody else there. Having heard the good news, the hearers must believe and that belief must be to call upon God for salvation. So there are the points of sending, preaching, hearing, believing and calling upon God are the basic foundation stones, if you like, that Paul puts forward in this passage. And he says that the message is heard through the word about Christ. 
The word about Christ is based on fact. I don't, I don't know how many of you here have ever had a discussion with a non-Christian person about the, the um, fairy tale Bible. Everything in the Bible's been made up and it's all fairy tale, there's no truth in it, there's inconsistencies, la, 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 la. The Bible is based on historical fact. Jesus walked on the earth. There are some people here who've walked in the, on the same paths as Jesus has. Who, who, some of those people, they're well-worn. He actually walked on some of those. You can talk to uh, Isaac about that later. He died on the cross, that's a fact. He rose from the dead, that's a fact. He saved us through his selfless act. Fact, fact, fact. There is no fiction at all, Christian belief. So God has provided Jesus as the way for mankind to be reconciled back to God. God is visible everywhere. Our job is to tell people about it, isn't it? It's to get the message through. Now this is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. It's fairly simple to tell people about the good news. But most of us find it very difficult. So what are the roadblocks? What's the problem? Well, I guess we need to take out our mirrors again and have a look at ourselves, and that's probably the answer. We trust too much in ourselves, not upon God. We don't trust his word enough to go out there and, uh, and spread the good news. We're reluctant to step out and to let him lead us. Do you feel overwhelmed sometimes by the non-Christians that you come across? Do you feel that your testimony is perhaps a bit too weak and feeble to mention and that the criticisms that you might get are too hard to handle? Are you afraid that by speaking up for Christ you might lose your job? You can talk to Chris about that later. Are you afraid that by speaking up for Christ you might lose your friends? or lose the respect of your neighbours or the respect of your own family. The idea of standing up and identifying as a Christian and publicly witnessing to others can be daunting. And not surprisingly, many Christians find it difficult. A lot of Christians, like other people, fly under the radar and keep their light hidden from public view. And when they're asked the question, what did you do on the weekend? Sometimes the response carefully avoids mention of church, Jesus, the sermon or other Christians. And if we're ever confronted by someone who actually sees us going to church, heaven forbid, we find our response to be inadequate. Certainly not a confident Christian response. And dare I say it, to our shame, even when we're with other Christians, we can sp feel spiritually inferior, thinking how bold and confident they are when they're speaking about their faith, when compared to our feeble efforts, our stutterings, can't find the words to say. And that can be very discouraging, can't it? Let me break this witnessing thing down into a few manageable pieces. What is it? And what are we witnesses of? And what are we expected to do? Well, as a definition, witnessing is an activity of testifying to the truth. Now, that can either be something you've seen with your own eyes or something, uh, the truth that we know about. 
It's, it's an activity. We do something. There's an action taking place. Now, it either might be in what we do or what we say or a combination. And secondly, as I've mentioned, it's about testifying to the truth. To testify is to serve as evidence or proof that something exists or is the case. It can be something that we've seen or experienced. It's something that we know to be true. Now, the good thing about it is that Jesus understands us as human beings. He understands how we think. He understands how we, uh, what makes us tick, who we are. And in the context of this passage, he understands how we learn. If you recall the Gospels, Jesus teaches his followers often by way of a story. Gospels are full of them, full of parables. He explains the kingdom of God. He explains discipleship. He explains relationships. And he even explains his own role as a saviour of the world in terms of stories. And the disciples remembered those stories. And when they were set out on their own to, do, to, do, to spread the gospel, they remembered the discussions that Jesus had with them. Even at the time, they might not have cottoned on to what was going on. But they remembered those stories. And that drove their understanding of the relationship between man and God. Now, there are many ways to witness, to share the gospel, and a very good way to do this is to actually talk about your own story. Why are you sitting here tonight, away from um, home, uh, with all these people in this room? You're here for a reason, because you've got a relationship with Jesus. Now, your story about your relationship with Jesus is unique to you. I can't argue with Les's um, story about his relationship with, uh, with Jesus nor with Ian's or John's or Kate's or Tom's. Their relationship with Jesus is unique. They're the experts on that relationship. Apart from Jesus, they know all about it. So think about witnessing in terms of your own relationship with Jesus and the story that you have. I'm going to share with you now a few stories of other people who have shared their stories in different ways to help you think about, about this, okay? We'll call the fellow Jim, and he's an elder at a church. His job in that church was to evangelise new people that moved into the area that he lived in. Sun Lee and his family were Vietnamese refugees. They moved into the area with nothing. No possessions, no relationships. They didn't know anybody and they needed a lot of help. Jim began his relationship with Sun Lee and his family by spending a lot of time with them. He got them food, he got them shelter. He put them in touch with people. He also got Sun Lee a job. But Jim wanted so much to tell Sun Lee about Jesus. But he didn't know Vietnamese. And Sun Lee didn't know English. Both of them spent time trying to learn each other's language so that they could become better friends and better communicate. On this particular day, Jim felt he knew enough now to tell Sun Lee about Jesus. So he began to explain about God to Jesus, God and Jesus to Sun Lee. But the more he tried to explain it, the more confusing it seemed to get. 
Sun Lee would repeat in Vietnamese a little of what Jim said in English. Finally, Jim was so frustrated that he decided to give up. He couldn't communicate until he learnt more Vietnamese. But Sun Lee actually, at that point, blurted out, uh, Jim, I can't do Vietnamese English, Jim, is your God like you? If he is, I want to know him. Jim explained that Jesus was far greater than him, yet Sun Lee wanted to know Jesus. Why? Because if, as, if he was like Jim, he wanted to know. You see, for all these months, Jim was thinking he wasn't communicating, but he was. He was communicating as an example of a life that was filled with Jesus, and Sun Lee saw it, and he wanted part of it. That's the first story. The second story takes us way back a few years ago to the year 251 AD. Nobody around at that time? During the Greco-Roman, in the Greco-Roman world, I guess that's the, the area that we're talking about, um, a century before there was a plague that wiped out more than uh, a third of the population of the world as they knew it. And there was a new plague. Those who could afford it fled to the countryside, away from the cities. Those who couldn't remained. When people went to the temples, they found them empty because the priests had scarpered. They'd gone, they'd gone bush. The streets were filled with those who had become infected because the families had turfed them out of the house. Get out of the house, you can't affect us, infect us. But what was happening? The early Christian communities were actually looking after the people who were in the streets. They brought them into their homes, looked after them, nursed them, cared for them. And historians look back and say that a lot of people were recovered from, from uh, being sick because the basic nursing practices, particularly of public health things like clean, clean water and, and hygiene, helped reduce the mortality rate by as much as two-thirds. But several Christians lost their lives in doing this. At another time, the um, pagan ruler... Emperor Julian, when he was trying to re-establish paganism in the empire, told the pagan priests to follow the example of the Christians because he saw the effect that their lifestyle and their understanding had on the power of the witness that they had as Christians in that community. Now, the third example is a sort of a reverse example and it's something for us to, to think about. And if you look, in the, if you look in, the, in the building here tonight, you'll see that the first three rows here are empty. I'll refer to that in this story. This is a note from a high school girl who wrote to a friend. I can't do girl voices. I attended your church yesterday. Although you had invited me, you weren't there. I looked for you, hoping to sit with you but you weren't there. So I sat alone, a stranger. I wanted to sit near the back of the church, but those rows were all packed with regular attenders. So the usher took me to the front. I felt as if I was on parade. During the singing of the hymns, I was surprised to note that some of the church people weren't singing. Between their sighs and yawns, they just stared into space. Three of the kids that I had respected on, on the uni campus that I was on were whispering to one another throughout the whole service. Another girl, girl was giggling, 
I really didn't expect that at church. The pastor's sermon was really interesting, although some members of the choir didn't seem to think so. They looked bored and restless. One of them even kept smiling at somebody else in the congregation. There were several people who left during the sermon and came back in again. I thought to myself, how rude was that? I could hear the constant shuffling of feet and doors opening and closing behind me. The pastor spoke about the reality of faith. His message got to me and I made up my mind to speak to someone about it after the service. But utter chaos reigned after the benediction. I said good morning to one couple, but their response was less than cordial. I looked for some teens to who, with whom I could discuss the sermon, but they're all huddled over in the corner talking about the music. My parents don't go to church. <clears throat> I came alone yesterday hoping to find a place to truly worship and feel some love. I'm sorry, but I didn't find it in your church. I won't be back. When we look inwardly and become self-serving, this can have a devastating effect on our witness. We need to be forever on our guard against complacency, against disregard for others. The last example <clears throat> revolves around Christian material, Christian pamphlets. Now Christian, who is on the uh, desk, will show you some examples on the screen. One of them talks about Christmas and um, you can buy multiple copies of things like this to hand out at, at, to, uh, to people who come to church at Christmas time. Or, and they're useful things to start conversations, aren't they? Another one is uh, entitled Don't Waste Your Life, which is talking about the priorities in your life. And that can be uh, used as a, as a discussion starter with someone you know. Um, the third one is one we uh, often use at the Hawkesbury Show uh, because we offer hospitality and that's finding rest, finding rest in Jesus. Most of them have a similar theme wrapped around a slightly different cover. What I want to talk about in a bit more detail is the next pamphlet which isn't the actual pamphlet that is mentioned. If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? Some of you may have heard this, um, this story um, and it's going to be on video so that my voice is getting a bit of a rest. I'd like you to listen to it and ponder it and then I'll close after that. A number of years ago, in a Baptist church in Crystal Palace in southern London, the Sunday morning service was closing and a stranger stood up at the back, raised his hand, he said, excuse me pastor, can I share a little testimony? The pastor looked at his watch, he said, you've got three minutes. And this man proceeded, he said, I just moved into this area, I used to live in another part of London, I came from Sydney in Australia, and just a few months back I was visiting some relatives, and I was walking down George Street, you know where George Street is in Sydney, it runs from the business hub out to the rocks, the colonial area, and he said, a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand and he said, excuse me sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I was astounded by those words, nobody had ever told me that. I thanked him courteously and all the way on British Airlines back to Heathrow, this puzzled me. I called a friend who lived in this new area where I'm living now and thank God he was a Christian. He led me to Christ and I'm a Christian and I want a fellowship here. And Baptists love testimonies like it. Everyone applauded and welcomed him into the fellowship. 
That Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide in Australia the next week. And ten days later, in the middle of a three-day series in a Baptist church in Adelaide, a woman came to him for counseling and he wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. And she said, I used to live in Sydney. And just a couple of months back, I was visiting friends in Sydney, doing some last-minute shopping down George Street, and a strange little white-haired man, elderly man, stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? She said, I was disturbed by those words. When I got back to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me, and I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. So, sir, I'm telling you that I am a Christian. Now, this London pastor was now very puzzled. Twice, within a fortnight, he'd heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach in the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Perth. And when his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for a meal. And he said, mate, how'd you get saved? He said, I grew up in this church from the age of 15 through Boys Brigade. Never made a commitment to Jesus, just hopped on the bandwagon like everybody else. And because of my business ability, grew up to a place of influence. I was on a business outing in Sydney just three years ago. And an obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a stop shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, cheap junk, and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. He said, I was seething with anger all the way home on Qantas to, to Perth. He said, I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize with me, and my pastor agreed. He had been disturbed for years knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and he was right. And my pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. Now this London preacher flew back to the UK and was speaking at the Keswick Convention in the Lake District. And he threw in these three testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, four elderly pastors came up and said, we got saved between 25 and 35 years ago, respectively, through that little man on George Street giving us a tract and asking us that question. He then flew the following week to a similar Keswick convention in the Caribbean, to missionaries. And he shared the testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, three missionaries came up and said, we got saved between 15 and 25 years ago, respectively, through that little man's testimony and asking us that same question on George Street in Sydney. Coming back to London, he stopped outside Atlanta, Georgia, to speak at a naval chaplain's convention. And when his three days of revving these naval chaplains up, over a thousand of them, in soul winning, the chaplain general took him out for a meal. And he said, how did you become a Christian? He said, well, it was miraculous. I was a rating on a United States battleship, and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked in Sydney Harbor for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I got blind drunk. I got on the wrong bus, got off in George Street, and... <laughs> As I got off the bus, I thought it was a ghost. This elderly, white-haired man jumped in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, the fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked sober and ran back to the battleship, sought out the chaplain. The chaplain led me to Christ. And I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. And here I am in charge of over a thousand chaplains and we're bent on soul winning today. That London preacher... Six months later, flew to do a convention for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote corner of northeastern India. And at the end, the Indian missionary in charge, a humble little man, took him home to his humble little home for a simple meal. And he said, how did you, as a Hindu, come to Christ? He said, I was in a very privileged position. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission. And I traveled the world. And I am so glad for the forgiveness of Christ. 
and his blood covering my sin because I'd be very embarrassed if people found out what I got into. He said, one bout of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. And I was doing some last minute shopping laden with parcels of toys and clothing for my children, walking down George Street. And this courteous little white-haired man stepped out in front of me, offered me a pamphlet, and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. I got back to my town, I sought out the Hindu priest, and he couldn't help me. But he gave me some advice. He said, just to satisfy your curious mind, nothing else, go and talk to the missionary in the mission house at the end of the road. And that was fatal advice. He said, because that day the missionary led me to Christ, I quit Hinduism immediately, and then began to study for the ministry. I left the diplomatic service, and here I am, by God's grace, in charge of all these missionaries, and we are winning hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Well, eight months later, that Crystal Palace Baptist pastor was ministering in Sydney, in Gymea, southern suburb of Sydney. And he said to the Baptist minister, do you know a little man, an elderly little man, who witnesses and hands out tracts on George Street? And he said, I do. His name is Mr. Genor, G-E-N-O-R. But I don't think he does it anymore. He's too frail and elderly. The man said, I want to meet him. Two nights later, they went around to this little apartment, knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail little man opened the door. He sat them down, made them some tea, and he was so frail he was slopping tea into the saucer as he shook. And as he sat with them, this London preacher told him all these accounts over the previous three years. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks. He said, my story goes like this. He said, I was a rating on an Australian warship, and I lived a reprobate life, and in a crisis, I really hit the wall, and one of my colleagues whom I gave literal hell was there to help me. He led me to Jesus, and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours. And I was so grateful to God. I promised God that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. As God gave me strength. Sometimes I was ill, I couldn't do it, but I made up for it for other times. I wasn't paranoid about it, but I have done this for over 40 years. And in my retirement years, the best place was on George Street. There were hundreds of people. I got lots of rejections. But a lot of people courteously took the tracks. And he said, in 40 years of doing this, I've never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. Do you know, I would say that has to be commitment. That has to be just sheer gratitude and love for Jesus to do that. Not hearing of any results. Margarita did a little count. That's 146,100 people. That simple little non-charismatic Baptist man influenced somehow to Jesus. And I believe what God was showing that Baptist minister was the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of this iceberg. Goodness knows how many more had been arrested for Christ and were doing huge jobs out in the mission field. Mr. Genor died two weeks later. And can you imagine the reward he went home to in heaven? I doubt if his face would ever have appeared on Charisma magazine I doubt if there would ever have been a write-up with a photograph in Billy Graham's Decision magazine, as beautiful as those magazines are. Nobody except a little group of Baptists in southern Sydney knew about Mr. Genor. But I'll tell you, his name was famous in heaven. Heaven knew Mr. Genor. And you can imagine the welcome and the red carpet and the fanfare he went home to when he arrived in glory. Mr. Genor died on the 8th of May, 1977. And he's buried at Warrenora down in the south. He was 73. We're called to be Christ's witnesses wherever we are, wherever we go, 
and with whomever we encounter, telling them about the good news of Jesus in our lives is a great true story. We need to share it with those who haven't heard and we need to continue to share it with those who have heard but not yet responded. By telling our story to others and letting God do the rest. If you want a copy of the, uh, a leaflet which is similar to the one that um, Frank, it's not Jenna or Frank Jenna gave out, uh, there are some copies that I will leave on the back table. Let's pray. Father, you've called us to be your witnesses in all places. You have given us the gift of life. Help us with your, with your spirit to be able to be bold, uh, to be able to conf- talk with people about the way that you have changed us and the way that you sustain us, the good news of your son Jesus. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.